1: Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we'll be discussing the EU FNM's focus on the economy and migration and what is going on in the polls. To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by our chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, managing editor of FT.com Robert Trimsley, data journalist John Byrne Murdoch, and the founder of Number Crunch Politics, Matt Singh. Thank you all for joining. So, the EU referendum campaign has plodded along this week, and we've seen a tightening of the message. The Remain side have focused pretty much all on the economy, with a big speech from George Osborne and David Cameron. The Treasury's also done their short-term analysis of Brexit. It's very bad. And on the Leave side, they've honed their message right down to immigration, the negative effect it'll have on Britain. So, who's winning? Well, it's a little bit hard to tell. Jim, from your point of view, who's it been a good week for in the
2: referendum, Remain or Leave? Well, I was just in the Treasury about an hour ago, and the the mood there is quite buoyant. They feel that their message is is certainly getting home. And what a message it was. I mean, a very bleak set of figures that they put out in that document on Monday. They were talking about a 3.6% reduction in GDP. They were talking about house prices falling, which is obviously not bad news for everybody. But leaving that aside, they were talking about interest rates going up. And loads of numbers to back it up. They were talking about a black hole of something like £40 billion just a few years down the line. Now, whether people believe it or not, I think there's quite a credible argument that people will take it with a pinch of salt in terms of how specific can you really be? Can you really say there's 520,000 jobs that are going to go under scenario X? But I think subliminally the drip, drip, drip of this is is going to reach through to people, which is this is not going to be very good for the economy if we vote for out.
1: It was a very bleak message, Robert, that the Treasury report described Brexit as having a shock or severe shock on the economy. We also had a report from the IFS, which is a very respected independent think tank, who said that Brexit would lead to a And leave a 20 to 40 billion pound black hole in the economy so it's all looking not very good for leave on the economic side is it i think that's absolutely right
3: i mean i do think sometimes these treasury reports ought to be accompanied by staccato violins you know and shock music as the message comes out but i think one thing we have to think about if we look back in history just a little bit to the the david cameron era in general We've seen this movie before, we've seen it twice. We saw it in the Scottish referendum and we saw it in the general election. David Cameron and the Conservatives are good at message discipline. They're very, very good at it and they are very clear what their message is and very clear about how they get it across. Even if you take the point that Jim was making about house prices, it's a very, very clever piece of targeting. Of course, not everybody actually wants house prices not to fall. If you're young and can't afford a house, that's not good news, but this is targeted at older voters. It's I put my people- hand up there, by the way, Absolutely. actually. (laughs) you know this is very carefully targeted at older voters who don't want to see the house price fall even though they're probably never going to sell it it's very carefully targeted at people who worried about negative equity the kind of people who might actually be tempted to vote to leave the european union and now being given a very strong reason not to do so so this is a campaign that david cameron and george osborne are running exactly
2: as they want it to run and i should just interject there and say that Until now, we've been working on the basis that the people who were going to vote for Brexit would be people with relatively low educational qualifications and also people who are older. And yet for the first time this week, there was a poll in the Daily Telegraph suggesting that retired people pensioners by a small margin had shifted just about to the remain camp, which could be striking. Yes, I mean, I think it's very clear what the Remain camp is trying to do. I think they're executing
3: it pretty well. Even if you think there's real hyperbole in these numbers, even if you don't quite believe the statistics, even if you really think you tell yourself, oh, I don't believe David Cameron, none of these politicians telling me the truth. It's all sinking in day after day. This campaign is the campaign that Remain want to run and it is running to their script at the moment. It'd be very interesting to see the impact of the immigration figures that came out on Thursday and be very interesting to see if
1: leave can get this campaign onto the immigration theme we'll come to the immigration figures in one tick, but before we do jim one thing that i was really quite surprised at is the ifs is liked by a lot of the people in the leave camp you know ian duncan smith michael gobe have praised it over the years for its independence its neutrality normally because it's kicking the government or the opposition this week we saw the message being that this is an eu-funded organization you can't trust a word they say which seems really odd to me they're playing the board No, the man here definitely not the ball and that's really going for the IFS, instead of saying, well, actually, we think these projections are wrong. Here's our own projection. I don't think I've heard a
2: single thing from the leave camp on here is why the IFS is wrong and we're right. Exactly. And I think when they attack the Treasury on Monday, that seems a perfectly logical thing to do, because this is a Treasury which failed to predict the recession, the credit crunch. They have these incredibly optimistic forecasts of how soon we're going to pay off in the national debt and the deficit. And it never seems to happen. So it seems reasonable to take a pop at them. But the Institute for Fiscal Studies has a special place within the British establishment. People believe it. When the out campaign says to them, they take European money, therefore we can't trust them. The reason it makes no sense at all is because they also take grants from the British government and every six months they kick the British government in the head after every budget and every autumn statement and therefore very risky thing to do. And I think that they're almost doing a kind of Donald Trumpization of British politics where they've decided we are the anti-establishment campaign, we're the grassroots, so the more we kick the establishment, the more we can hammer that home. And very striking today that the Washington Post did a list of the Donald Trumps of European politics and in there, next to Marine Le Pen and... Beppe Grillo was none other than Boris Johnson I, I think Jim's absolutely right about this. I mean, the attack on the IFS. By the
3: way, I have to say there's something quite hilarious about Nigel Farage attacking the IFS for receiving EU funding when he's an MEP and receives EU funding himself. But the clear position they're in is that they don't have the economic answers to counter the government's claims, mainly because they don't agree between themselves what economic scenario they'd actually like to see if Britain left the European Union. So they can't actually argue the case, even though there are people who could make a, a credible argument and try and push back on the economics. They can't argue the case much simpler just to go off the organisation and attempt to discredit
2: it. And that has been their strategy throughout. And just to chip in on that one, I found it really interesting that they were just trying to say the IFS is talking rubbish and the economy may or may not be worse off. Whereas Nigel Farage, to give him credit, in the past he has said publicly... That should we leave the European Union, there will be a small hit to economic growth, small in percentage terms, quite big in real people's lives potentially. And he said, this is the price we pay for getting our sovereignty back, getting control of our borders back. Yes, there's a price. So he's been more honest about it. And there's this real sort of divergence. And the divergence IFS, of course, of course. actually differed from the Treasury numbers. So if they'd been cute, Vote Leave
3: could actually embrace the IFS and say, yes, there is a hit, but it's nothing like the hit the government says
1: it's going to be. That would have been a smart response. I think we saw that as well in the select committee for the, any of our listeners who watch such things like we do, that when Aaron Banks, who was from the Leave EU side, which is famous to the Nigel Farage side, he happily said, you know, we'll take that hip to, you know, if it's going to cost £4,300 a household whatever it is, that's fine because it's a price worth paying, whereas Vote Leave have tried to obfuscate. They've never really answered the economic question and we've seen that this week as they have focused relentlessly on immigration. Robert, and I think this is, as you were saying before, We've seen a message about Turkey is joining the EU, according to Vote Leave. The UK population could grow by 5 million by 2020, according to Michael Gove. And Boris Johnson said we've lost all control of our borders and it's only going to get worse. Because clearly they've found a message discipline here. Up to a point. But I mean, you've got to have a message discipline that
3: is viable. The the message discipline of Nigel Farage had had been using for quite a long time, which is it's an open door to anybody in the European Union, has real validity because it's true. It's actually correct. And there's no way you can argue against that claim. But you can argue against the claim that Turkey is about to join the European Union because it isn't about to join the European Union. It's going to get some visa-free travel for up to three months. So it's a disputable, defeatable claim. And even though it feels like a really good scare, oh my God, the entire population of Turkey is coming to Britain. You know, they'll all be ahead of you in the queue at Tesco. It's, it's nonsense and it's easily defeatable. And you saw David Cameron slapping down one of his own ministers at the beginning of the week when she said Britain couldn't stop Turkey joining the EU. Well, actually, every member state of the EU has a veto on all new applicants. And the
2: other point, I'd make, of course, is that one of the biggest advocates of Turkish membership of the EU has been Boris Johnson. There's a really fascinating scenario where you pan ahead and we imagine a world where Britain has voted to leave Europe. And the primary reason for people doing so is immigration. And I've been out there doing fox pops all over the country. And when you talk to people who want out, it's almost always immigration. That is the issue that just comes up again and again and again. But let's imagine a scenario where we leave the EU and then six months, 12 months, two years down the line or five years down the line, there are still exactly the same number of immigrants coming to Britain. Firstly, because we've reopted back into the single market and there's free movement of labour. And secondly, the out campaign have been very open that they've gone around uh, second generation immigrant communities saying, you know what? If we vote Leave, then you can bring in your relatives from India, Bangladesh, wherever else, because it won't be the polls coming in. And so there are going to be some very defeated expectations, I suspect, should that happen. And I have to say, the part that puzzles me, I don't know the
3: answer to this question, is that it seems to me that those people most exercised about immigration have probably already made up their mind to join the Leave side and to vote that way. I find myself wondering how many more votes... Leave can garner by playing this card consistently. It is their best card, They're right to do it, but I'm not sure that there's a large pool of people to be got this way in the same way that there is a large pool to be pulled away from them by
1: scaring them about the economy. This is the question, I suppose, Jim, about when we're looking at the state of the campaign, that at the very beginning of this, Vote Leave said, we're not going to focus heavily on immigration because people who are going to vote leave already believe this. You know, it's very much a core vote thing. And this is what's interesting in this transition. Some people at vote leave say this was a planned strategy that we've widened the debate. We've talked about the NHS. We've talked about sovereignty. We've talked about law. Now we're going to really focus on our core issue to get people to turn out. Others say we can't win on the economy. We've lost that message. The one thing we know that will motivate our supporters and get them out is immigration. And that to me just sounds like a strategy that is not going to get 51% of voters to back leave because, as Robert was and you were saying before, it's a divisive message and it's one that will turn off some people.
2: Yeah, and I, I agree with you that if you rewind a couple of months, there was this whole issue of vote leave were desperate to keep Nigel Farage and his money bank, Aaron Banks, out of the whole debate because they thought he would be divisive because he'd go on and on about immigration and now they're doing the same thing. But maybe they've just realised that the swing voters out there who choose to vote will probably be more swayed by the economy in the end than immigration. And like you say, Seb, it's going to be about turnout and all these kind of trendy young people in Brighton who say things like, I feel more European than British. Are they actually going to bother to come out on the day and vote? And that's why the polls are still looking pretty close for comfort. I do find it staggering. The people who want to leave the European Union have had
3: decades to prepare for this debate and they've certainly had a couple of years of knowing it's absolutely coming and the fact they haven't even managed to coordinate an economic message with which to fight back knowing
1: that that was the main weapon that was going to be used against them just speaks to me of a quite staggering incompetence. One thing that I found interesting is how the language of Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage has merged together, because Boris is always seen as the Teflon politician, things don't stick to him, but you know, what he's been saying this week about, you know, if Remain is going to get worse, you have to vote, leave to get control back. You've then got Nigel Farage who says mass immigration is hopelessly out of control. They're literally the same phrases they're using now, Jim, and it just sense that immigration is the one thing to bring Brexiters together, but are they just talking to themselves?
2: Well, there are different visions, aren't there, as to what Brexit would entail. And you have certain people, especially Tories, who want Britain to be more like a kind of free trading, Singapore-esque, liberal country. And then there's the UKIP view, which we're hearing much more of from some of those Tories. Um, But what does this mean for Boris
1: as his future, though? Because this whole thing, again, is viewed through the Tory leadership contest. And when you see Boris waving around asparagus or a Cornish pasty, you can see that this is a man who's clearly trying to garner as much publicity as possible and go to number 10. But I think he has damaged his image somewhat. You know, so far, he'll be remembered for this campaign for being slightly racist towards the US president and talking about Hitler. Yeah, it's very strange. I have to say, I'm beginning to wonder if
3: Boris actually doesn't want to win this vote. If you think about a man who harbours serious and quite plausible ambitions to become prime minister, does he really want to become prime minister sometime in July or August with the country in the enormous crisis of having to manage its departure from the EU? Or does he actually want to be the guy who's burnished his Eurosceptic credentials, hasn't really put up much of a convincing fight for that argument. And on the day after he's lost, stands with David Cameron, says, now is the time for unity. We've got to get back together as a party to defeat the socialist menace of Jeremy Corbyn. And all of a sudden, it's Boris the healer. We all love him again. I find myself really puzzled as to whether his heart is actually in this campaign.
2: Exactly. And if you talk to business people and a lot of people in the real world, there's a real loud volume of Disappointment in Boris Johnson. I'm not just making this up because I'm from the Europhile FT. People who aren't very strongly interested in politics are saying, What is this guy playing at? And interestingly, the odds today are now putting George Osborne ahead of Boris in terms of who's going to be the next Tory leader. But That is all based on a misunderstanding of the fact that Boris could play to two different constituencies. There is the constituency of British voters out there who it feels like are probably going to say no to Brexit. And then there's the constituency, the selectorate of Tory grassroots who will pick the next Conservative leader. And they have very different attitudes. They are much more in favour of Brexit and they love Boris at the moment. And he knows that. And I agree with Robert that even if he loses the campaign, he wins in terms of internal Tory politics. I have to say, I wouldn't put much money on George Osborne as the next Tory leader.
1: One of the key unknown elements about the EU referendum is who is actually winning the campaign. Ever since the general election, there has been a scepticism from voters about how accurate the polls are. And this is not helped by the huge difference in numbers we've seen between phone polls, online polls. They're giving a very different picture there, different leads. So I'm here with two number crunches to try and figure out just what's going on here. So uh, John Byrne Murdoch, I'm going to start with you. You're the brains behind the
4: FT's poll of polls. What are we saying is happening at the moment? Thanks for having me, first of all, sir. It's good to get out from behind the spreadsheets. So uh, at the moment, the top number on our poll tracker is, this is an average, a sort of weighted average of polls weighted for recency. We've got 46 for Remain, 41 for Leave. That's our top line.
1: So on that number there, that's not really shifted over the past week or so,
4: even though it's been quite heavily reported that there's been a movement towards Remain. That's right. I mean it has shifted over, if we go back to sort of the last two on a two-week scale. And what's happened recently is there's been actually in the last few days, the balance between phone and online has shifted back um, towards the middle. Right, yeah. got you.
1: So, Matt Singh, uh, you're the man with the, uh, the golden halo who got the 2015 general election right. So, I've asked this before. I'm going to throw this question to you again. What do you think is going to happen on June the
5: 23rd? Well, thanks for the intro, Seb. It's good to be back. So at the moment, the number country politics forecast model, which I'm compiling, has about a 19% chance of a vote to leave, 81% chance of a Remain. That is bang in line with what the betting markets have at the moment. So basically, in terms of the polls, if you take a sort of a, a balanced view between phone and online, you get something, as John says, about a five or six point lead for Remain. My view before is that it's probably a little bit closer to what phone polls are saying, and then you have some technical facts on top of that, like the polls in general are for Great Britain only. They don't include Northern Ireland, which tends to be more in. So once you go through all of that, you get a current Remain lead that's probably in the higher single digits, and then based on history, we know status status quo's often but not always outperform as you get close to the date so likeliest outcome is that we get a Remain share in the final vote somewhere in the mid 50s I've got 56 as the most likely outcome at the moment but obviously there's a quite a bit of uncertainty around that.
1: So that sounds like a pretty comfortable lead for Remain at the moment and it's outside the traditional three-point margin of error you get on most British polls then so you know has that lead been growing or has it
5: been steady for a while in, in your view? It's been steadier than is commonly being reported. I think because of the fact that you've had you had a period where there, all of the polls were online, and now you've had a period where, as John says, there's been a lot more phone polls, and I think we've just got shot of one false narrative, which was that it was neck and neck when it, it wasn't. And now we're in danger of getting into a new one, which is that there's been a huge swing towards Remain and Remain is heading for a landslide. As I say, I think Remain is ahead and has probably pulled a little bit further ahead, but it's maybe a couple of points, not a you know 20 points that, that some people are assuming. Yeah, so going back, John, to the FT's poll of polls on that,
1: You were just saying before we were recording, there's a huge amount of phone polls conducted now, which is going to shift towards Remain. Is there any reason why phone polls are more likely to favour Remain and how much impact is that having on that 46-41 top-line figure?
4: Sure. So it's a really interesting one because in the early days of polling, if we go back even as far as the uh, the annals of history that are 2015, there was huge dominance of online polls over telephone. But what we've seen then since the gulf in results has come out with phone polls favouring Remain, what looks like it's happened in the last 30 days, and Matt, correct me if I'm interpreting this wrongly, is that the pollsters have intentionally increased the frequency of telephone polls relative to online in order to sort of smooth out some of the skew that we were perhaps seeing beforehand. But the result of that, as you've hinted at, is that we've seen then a skew towards Remain recently. So I was just looking at the numbers quickly and in the last 30 polls that have been carried out at all, 12 of those have been on telephone and obviously the other 18 online. And that's actually twice as many, that 12, as in the previous 30 polls. So it's unsurprising really that we would then see a skew towards Remain given the methodological differences. Mm. And just to expand on what we mean by the methodological differences there, what has been commonly and widely reported is that it's the phrasing of the questions and the fact that in one-on-one phone conversations people are persuaded more to break for either remain or leave rather than don't know which is causing that increasing vote for remain
1: Yeah. Um, So why, Matt, do you think phone
5: polls are favouring Remain? Well, from the work that I did, it was a joint paper between me and James Kanagasorium at Populous, and we did a couple of parallel polls, phone and online, same time, same questions, to try to get to the bottom of what was going on. And there were basically two key elements. So, as John says, there are two options on a a phone poll. Uh, You ask, would you vote to Remain or vote to Leave? And the... Pollster will record a don't know only if you say it verbatim. In an online poll you tend to have all of the options on the screen so there would be a prominent don't know option. Now, unsurprisingly, that increases the number of don't knows in online polls, but it doesn't increase them evenly. It tends to hurt Remain more. Now, that we were able to demonstrate through split testing that that does have an impact, but it's not the whole gap. The biggest problem or the biggest reason is simply that they're talking to different people. Now, as we know from the last general election, polls do have a problem with getting representative sample of the population. Online polls have self-selecting panels phone polls these days have pretty low response rates so you're not getting an exactly representative sample and they seem to be unrepresentative in slightly different ways and we think in a way that's not easily visible it seems to be that even once you allow for all the different demographics and the politics of different people they seem to be quite different in terms of their social attitudes Mm. and it's that that explains the difference between the two There was something else as well. Last question on this, Matt, is that
1: this rapid response thing, one of the posts has changed their methodology this week, which saw the rate being, I think it was ICM, it was much, much closer because of this. What was all that about?
5: Yeah, so this was Martin Boone's email, which I'd highly recommend the uh, ICM poll, so it's always very candid. What he said was that... When they have sent out emails for their their weekend polls, the way that their sample has been done up until now was that they have quotas for different demographics. So the example he gave was men over the age of 65, who obviously we know lean heavily towards out. And what happened is that that quota filled up very quickly on the Friday night. So people who responded to it quickly were being overrepresented. So people were quite leave on a Friday night and more remain over the rest of the weekend. So if you were do if you're building sample like that, it would be biased towards leave because of that. It does affect other online pollsters, but not all online pollsters. Some have come out and said it doesn't. But uh, that is a potential problem that obviously some people will be uh, looking at. So the polls are one thing that we've got,
1: John. The other thing is the betting markets, of course, and they seem to fall roughly in line with math model by predicting that that Remain is going to win the referendum.
4: That's right. So I've been looking a little bit at the odds in the last few days because I think this is interesting for two reasons. First of all, of course, it provides a potentially different narrative to the polls and, of course, the methodology is entirely detached. So that helps us a bit in terms of it making sure that we're looking at two completely different measures of likelihood. But the interesting thing for me is, given that a lot of people look to the bookies in terms of being Perhaps, because obviously there's a, people are staking money on this, perhaps a better indicator. The interesting thing for me is to look at what they were saying 13 months ago now in the lead up to the general election. And of course, the polls 13 months ago were now infamously incorrect. So I took a look at some historical betting odds today. And the thing that really jumped out at me was that with just five days to go, so we're not even talking about the 20 whatever days we're out now, but with just five days to go, the chances of no overall majority were pegged at 1 to 10 or 10 to 1 on so extremely likely essentially we're talking sort of 91% implied likelihood whereas if i look at the odds today they've got 7 to 1 on for remain ie the bookies were more sure were more convinced last time that there would be no overall majority than they're convinced it will remain now so even though those odds still say we're much more likely to remain just as the polls say that narrowly The point is both can be very wrong.
5: Yeah, that is a very important point because, I mean, the thing with betting markets or anything that involves using the wisdom of crowds so just asking people what they think is another one. It's difficult, really, to know what is actually driving that. I mean, in the betting markets, it's supply and demand. But we don't know. It sort of gives you an average expectation, but we don't know what people are basing those expectations on. And in a lot of cases, it's polls or models based on the polls. So you get an element of sort of circularity, and it's not entirely clear what's driving what. But yes, I mean, in terms of the betting markets last year and the fixed odds on the result and then the spreads on the the seats, I mean, they were not... Hugely different from the model forecast, so whether there's actually more information there is not uh, clear.
1: So from that, you could essentially say Brexit is unlikely but possible based on the betting markets.
5: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's not in the bag. I mean, yes, Romania's is clear favourite, but it, the race is certainly all over, things can still happen. And, I mean, we've still got the campaign, we've got all of the debates and then any other outside events that might have an impact. So there's certainly still time and it's not like this is over by any stretch.
1: Yeah. And the last thing, John, is just about turnout. A lot of people have talked about turnout for the referendum campaign, how that's going to affect things. Now, somebody said to me that 55% seems to be the key turning point, that if we get over 55% turnout, it makes a remain vote more likely. Do you think that's true? And how important is turnout going to be in deciding whether it's a remain or a leave vote?
4: Well, I can only really echo what far more well-resourced and intelligent people than me have said over the last couple of days, which is that Turnout may be important, but it won't be important as a overall number. People often get hung up on that. What obviously will be important is turnout within each camp. And I've been having a quick look at how that's been reported in some of the recent polls. And the thing that's actually quite interesting is that different pollsters treat this in different ways. So you've got some pollsters who say, because, of course, every, all these polls have the question of how likely are you to vote? And some pollsters will say, unless you say you're absolutely certain, we're not going to include... What the other stuff you tell us, the actual direction you intend to vote on in our results. Others will say we'll include certain people and we'll wait according to likelihood. Some say if you're at all wavering essentially we're not going to count it. So it's interesting. And if I look at the most recent YouGov poll, for example, of those who are absolutely the most certain 10 out of 10 to vote, that did lean towards leave, which is what's been reported. But if you go to those who are 90%, 80% or 70% sure, they all favoured remain. So I think it's correct that what people are saying turnout will matter, but not in the way that they anticipate.
1: Well, I hope that somehow clears up what's going on in the pose for you. We'll come back to this again. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next Saturday for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening.
5: If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com slash podcasts.
0: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.